Okay, so we're going to start at verse 1 of chapter 4. For the director of music with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call to you, O my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Be merciful to me and hear my prayer. How long, O men, will you turn my glory into shame? How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? Know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord will hear when I call to him. In your anger, do not sin. When you're on your beds, search your hearts and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and trust in the Lord. Many are asking, who can show us any good? Let the light of your face shine upon us, O Lord. You have filled my heart with greater joy than when their grain and new wine abound. I will lie down and sleep in peace. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Thank you so much, Laura, for that reading. Do keep that passage of the Bible open. And inside your white notice sheet, you should find a a short outline to help us. Let's pray again as we begin, shall we? Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for this song of David that we trust is the song of Christ and can be our song too. Help us to understand it aright. Help us um, to hear from you by your spirit today that we might know you better and trust you more. And we pray, Father, that we would, at the end of our time together, be able to sing this psalm with joy in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, What is the good of being a Christian? What is the good of it? Now, hopefully, if you are a Christian here today, you have a decent answer to that. You could answer that question. You could perhaps ask each other it later. What is the good of being a Christian? I wonder what you would say to somebody who asked that. What's what's the point? What's the good of it? If you're not a Christian today, I hope you are asking that question. I hope that's one of the reasons you're here, is to ask that question. What is the good of becoming a Christian? Should I do it? Is it worth it? What's the point? What's the good? Now, I begin with that question for two reasons. One is that it's a question that is asked in this psalm. Verse 6 Many are asking, who will show us any goods? I'm going to argue that is a question being asked by believers. Who can show us any good? What is the good of being a believer? And you can hear that it's asked in this psalm in quite a doubting tone, isn't it? Or at least a, a puzzled tone. And that's the second reason to ask this question this morning. It's because often it's quite hard to be a Christian. We saw that last week from Psalm 3. If you're here with us, you'll remember that well, I hope. There we saw King David on the run from his own son, who'd usurped his throne. David was shamed by his community, exiled from his city, physically exhausted, surrounded by enemies. And I said that then, although that was a unique historical event, that pattern of life belonged not just to David, but to David's descendant, Jesus Christ. 
And it's a pattern of life, therefore, that Christian people often are called to walk as we imitate and follow our Saviour. A path of suffering, a path of shame. And so it's a very good question to ask. If that is the path that Christians are called to walk day by day, then then where is the good? Is there any good here and now? We talked a bit uh, last week about the good that is coming in the new creation, the hope that Christians have for the future. And we've also said that a gospel that promises the world to us here and now is not the biblical gospel, it's a fantasy gospel. But the question remains, is there any good for Christians here and now? Well, that's the question we're going to explore here in Psalm 4. This psalm has very similar themes to Psalm 3. Hopefully you saw that as Laura uh, read, and if you were here last week. And indeed, it shares some of the same words and phrases as well. And although we can't be sure of it, it may be that it was written in precisely the same situation. This might be David on the Run from Absalom, Volume 2. We can't be sure because the title doesn't say that. But I think the fact that it's placed next to Psalm 3 and shares so many themes and words leads us to suspect that that might be the case. And I think it will make an awful lot of sense of the psalm if we read it that way. But even if that's, if that's wrong and it's not exactly the same situation, the problem that David is facing in this psalm is so similar that I think reflecting on that situation about Absalom and all the rest of it will help us with our understanding. Because David, you'll notice once again, verse 2, is surrounded by enemies. Enemies who are bringing false accusations against him and putting him to shame. And so we'll see once again how he deals with that. But in this psalm, David's going to do something new and different as well. He's also going to turn and speak to his own people, those loyal and faithful people gathered around their king. This is a people who are upset and discouraged and frightened, a people who are wondering if there is any hope sticking with this king, if trusting God and walking in his ways is worth it, a people who are asking the question, what is the good of being a believer. Well, let's dive into the psalm, shall we? And first we'll see the accusation of the godless. Read verse 1 with me, Psalm 4, verse 1. Answer me when I call to you, O my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Be merciful to me and hear my prayer. Once again, we find David calling to God from the midst of deep distress. He uses some very interesting Hebrew words, which are difficult to translate. The word for distress means something like being cramped or restricted. He feels he has no space, no room for manoeuvre. He's in a tight corner, you might say. That fits, doesn't it, with what we saw in Psalm 3, that he's surrounded then by many, many, many foes. Everywhere he looks, there are enemies and there is no way out. Perhaps you can empathise with that feeling, the feeling that there's no no room in your life, the troubles just keep coming, that, that everything's rather relentless. Well, that sense carries over to David's prayer to God. The word translated, give me relief, Literally means give me some space, give me some room, broaden me out, give me an escape, release me from the overwhelming pressure. Well, where's this pressure coming from? For David, it comes from the accusation of his enemies. Look at verse 2. How long, O men, will you turn my glory into shame? How long will you love delusions 
and seek false gods. Once again, like last week, we hear the language of glory and shame. To recap uh, from last week, David is being scorned and spurned and shamed by his community, by his own family, isn't he? He's an outcast, quite literally. Instead of being honoured as the son of God, king of Israel, he's being shamed as a murderer, a man of blood, a sinner. Remember Psalm 3 verse 2, just cast your eyes back there. Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. The people are saying that David is out of step with God. And therefore, they are putting him out of step with his own people. Now this verse in Psalm 4 could be just repeating that idea from Psalm 3. The word translated false gods there in verse 2 is literally just the word a lie. It's a word that can mean false gods elsewhere in the Bible, but it can just mean a lie. So they could just be saying, once again, that people are falsely accusing David. They're denying the truth about him. They're making up a lie, a delusion, and therefore they're turning David's glory, the honour David should be getting as king, into shame by sending him into exile. But as this translation is suggesting, then there might well be more going on here. You see, this accusation about David is not just a lie about David. David's enemies are saying to him, you're out of step with God. He's not going to deliver you. That's a lie about David, but it's also a lie about God. See, the accusation that David, about David that Shimei brought to him back in 2 Samuel, that had an element of truth in it, didn't it? You're a sinner, David. You're a murderer, he said to him. You're a man of bloods. And that's true. And there's also something true about what Shimei is saying about God and others around him. Shimei and others are saying to David, listen, God is a righteous God. He's a just God and you are a sinner and God punishes sinners. That's true too. God is just. God does punish sinners. And we'll see that very clearly in Psalm 5 after Christmas. Two truths then. David is a sinner and God punishes sinners. But David's accusers are playing a twisted game of two truths and a lie. They are taking those two truths, they're squidging them together, and they're making them into a lie. Shimei and others around him are wrong. The accusation that, God is out of, that David is out of step with God is wrong. The prediction that God has no interest in delivering David is wrong. And that's because of two other truths that they are not taking into account. There's another truth about David. He is a sinner, yes, but he's a repentant sinner. He has humbled himself before God. We saw that last week, didn't we? And we can see it in how he speaks to God in verse 1. Did you notice it at the end of verse 1? What does he say? He says, be merciful to me and hear my prayer. David doesn't call out for strict justice, but for mercy. He knows he does not deserve anything from God, and so he is crying out to God for mercy, for forgiveness. So they haven't, his accusers haven't taken into account this truth about David. Yes, he's a sinner, but he's a repentant sinner. And there's another truth about God that the accusers have not taken into account. It is the shocking truth that God is merciful. That the God who punishes sinners is also the God who forgives sinners. Again, there's a hint of that in verse 1. David calls uh, God in verse 1, my righteous 
God, that could just as easily be translated, and some versions do translate it, God of my righteousness. The God who declares me righteous. Here is the outrageous good news of the Bible. The good good news that will only be fully revealed and only make total sense in the coming of Jesus, that sinners like you and me can have our sin forgiven, our guilt removed, our shame washed away. That God is both the righteous God, the righteous judge, and the God of our righteousness, the one who declares sinners righteous. We'll come back to that. But, but do you see how this falsehood about David is also, at the same time, a falsehood about God's? By isolating this one truth about God and making it the be-all and end-all, these accusers have turned God into something he is not. They are looking, remember, at David, a humble, repentant sinner, and saying, well, our God has no time for people like you. You're suffering, and you deserve to suffer, and therefore, your suffering must be God's judgment. You see exactly the same dynamic in the book of Job. Job suffers awfully. The troubles just keep coming. He is overwhelmed by pressure, and yet, we're told at the beginning of that book that he does so as a righteous man, not a sinless man but one who through his repentance and faith is in the right with God. But his three companions, if you know the book, you remember this, his three companions cannot accept this. They have a view of God which is pure justice. And so they tell Job, look, you must have done something wrong because God is punishing you. That's why you're suffering, surely. That is not true of Job. They have a false view of Job. But at the end of the book, God rebukes those friends in these words on the screen. And look what he accuses them of. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Do you see the point? Their accusation against Job is a wrong idea of God's. And that's why, coming back to verse 2, I think it's fair that our versions here have translated that word lie as a false god's. Their lies about David are based on lies, wrong ideas about God. And so these people who claim to be followers of Yahweh, the glorious God of Israel, have shockingly enough replaced him with a shameful idol. This is a godless accusation. These people are not atheists, but the God they have believed in is not the God of the Bible. He is a mechanical, punishing God of strict justice. He's a slot machine. Sin in punishment out and the suffering you experience is easily explained as a direct result of your sin I wonder if you have that view of God now I'll be honest that that is the view of God that I grew up with as someone who wasn't going to church and didn't really understand the Bible that's who I thought God was about a slightly distant impersonal force who was there to administer justice And even as a Christian, I think it's a view of God that I I very easily fall back into. We suffer, or or we see someone else suffer, and part of us thinks, what have I done to deserve this? Or I wonder what they've done wrong. Sometimes suffering comes about because we do wrong, doesn't it? But not always. And the God of the Bible is not a mechanical slot machine sin punisher. He is a personal, loving 
merciful God who has plans and purposes that we can't always understand and who is so big and so powerful that he can even bring goods in and through our suffering. And so there is such a thing as the innocent suffering of a righteous person. That is what David is going through. That is what Jesus went through. And as we look at Jesus' suffering, we see that the God who we call to is both a righteous God who punishes sin, but also a merciful God who declares sinners righteous. So what can David, the suffering sinner, do? Verse 1, he cries out for mercy from a merciful God. He's in a very tight corner. And so he cries out for help. He is beset by enemies. But what is he doing? He is saying no to the enemy's accusations. And he is putting himself in the hands of the God who has the power and the, and the ability and the compassion to free him. But even if we're sure that the God of the Bible is like this, well, the accusations may still come. The pressure might still be on. And it's still hard, and it still hurts. So, how should we respond? Well, we'll see that next in the response of the godly. The response of the godly. I wonder if you feel at all nervous about my heading there, and about verse 3. Let's read verse 3 together. How long, O men, will you... No, that's verse 2. Verse 3. Know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord will hear when I call to him. Does that make you a bit nervous? It does for me tell you why. There is a special relationship in this verse, isn't there, between God, this merciful, powerful, compassionate God, and a group of people called the godly. They are set apart for him. They are his. They belong to him. He hears them when they call. They have access to him. Sounds great, doesn't it? But I'm nervous because most of the time I don't think I am very godly. So so am I here? Am I in this group? Are you in this group? Do I truly belong to God's? We need to once again remember the character of this God. So often, because I'm smuggling in that that slot machine mechanical view of God into my thinking, when I do sin, I assume that somehow I've lost some ground with God, that our relationship has been ruined somehow. Things are a bit iffy between me and God at the moment because I've let him down. I need to work my way back into his good books a little. I have been ungodly. God loves the godly, and therefore I need to make myself a little bit more godly, or else God won't hear me. But that's not right. Praise the Lord. Again, the word for godly here is a little bit difficult to translate. You, you may know the Hebrew word chesed. You know that word? Chesed. It means something like God's committed covenant love and devotion to his people. It carries ideas of mercy and kindness and loyalty and faithfulness. It's a, lot of, it's a little word with a lot of meaning. Well, the word godly comes from that same word. It means the one who practices chesed, the one who is merciful and kind and loyal and faithful. Godly is a very good translation because it means like the God of the Bible, like God, like the God of chesed. We might still be thinking, well, I don't think I'm like that either. But the point is this. In the Psalms, a big theme, Psalm 115 is the place to go, tells us that we become like what we worship. If you worship useless idols, you will become, frankly, useless when it comes to helping others. Now, we've seen that already in these Psalms. The God who Shimei worships, 
the mechanical, punishing, angry God of strict justice, what has that done to Shimei? It's made him a mechanical, punishing, angry man. But the God of the Bible is not like that. He's merciful, forgiving, and kind. He is the God of Chesed. And so those who worship him are those who are humble enough to know that they need his mercy. Who know that we're not godly on our own. We need forgiveness. And yet as we receive that forgiveness, we become like what we worship. We start to walk in God's ways. We start to meditate on his word and we find that we are shaped to be more like him. Now we saw that again in David's life, didn't we? When Absalom rose up against him, what did David say? Deal kindly with Absalom for my sake. Show him mercy. And so this godliness, this godliness is not a qualification for the Lord's kindness. No, it's the result of it. The merciful Lord gathers round him a people who have been shown mercy and who are growing in mercy. And I think in this section, David is now turning to address that group of people. It's often a bit tricky to determine who's talking to who in the Psalms, but I think that makes the most sense here. What do this group of people need to know when their king is accused and shamed, when their God is maligned? Well, they need to know, verse 3, that those who trust in the true God are still heard. They are still loved. They are still his. This community which is gathering around a shamed king is actually gathering around a glorious God. A God who hears the prayers of the king and therefore hears the prayers of those who pray in his name. That is what a shamed people need to hear. That as they bear the name of God and grow in his likeness, he is going to hear them and he will honour them. But there's another reason that this group of people, sorry, another response that this group of people need to think about because there's something more than shame going on in their hearts. There's also anger. Look at verse 4. In your anger, do not sin. When you're on your beds, search your hearts and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and trust in the Lord's. It's natural, isn't it, to feel angry when we are falsely accused, when people are speaking lies about us, or people are speaking lies about the people we love, when people are speaking lies about the God we love. It's natural to feel angry. And that anger is not necessarily wrong. There is such a thing as righteous anger. God himself displays it. Jesus displayed it. In fact, a literal translation of verse 4 is not, in your anger, do not sin, but be angry and do not sin. It's actually an imperative. David isn't saying to the people, now, come on now, there's no need to be angry. I haven't really done anything wrong. Let's just live and let live. No, sometimes there are good reasons for anger. It would be wrong not to be angry sometimes. The question is, what do God's people do with that anger? Well, we see a powerful example of what not to do uh, in David's flight from Absalom. Let me remind you of what David's friend Abishai said when Shimei was cursing David. Abishai, son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord, the king? Let me go over and cut off his head. That's one approach, isn't it? Now listen, it is Abishai wrong to be outraged and incensed by Shimei's behaviour? No. Shimei, standing at the side of the road, screaming at David, saying, you're a murderer, you're getting what God deserved. That is a lie. 
It's a dangerous and damaging lie. It is a brutal attack on the Lord's anointed son of God, King. That ought not to be an Abishai's right to be angry. His mistake is to think that he should be the one to administer justice and that he should do it right now. Abishai is just itching to sort this out. Let me at him, I'll shut him up all right. But David's counsel then was to let Shimei curse and leave the justice to God. And that's his counsel here too. Look at verse 4 again. In your anger, do not sin. When you're on your bed, search your hearts and be silent. That reference to being on your bed reminds us of David going to sleep back in uh, Psalm 3. Sometimes something he's going to do again at the end of Psalm 4 in verse 8. How does David sleep? He sleeps because he knows that God is in control, that God has spoken from his holy hill, that God is the one who's going to bring justice in the end, that he is going to silence every lie, and he's going to let truth ring out forever. And so in the midst of injustice and false accusation, David can sleep knowing that justice will be done. And he encourages the godly to do the same, to meditate in their own hearts, to to think and speak truth to themselves. I think that's what search uh, your hearts means in this context. And to to lie quiet, to be still, to let God uh, bring the justice. Now, that does not mean, don't mishear me, that does not mean that any time there is injustice, God's people should stay silent. Don't misunderstand me there. The Apostle Paul actually takes this verse and applies it to life in the church. And his application is not, don't do anything about injustice, not at all. Look, but look what he says on the screen, Ephesians 4. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbour for all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Paul's point is not, never speak up when you see injustice. No, his point is, speak the truth. Speaking the truth is not the same as getting revenge. It's not the same as angrily taking people down. When anger is the driving factor for our decisions, when we go to bed brooding and lingering on the slights we might have received and fantasizing about what we really want to say to that person who's made us so cross... That's when the devil gets a foothold in the church family. And when God's people are maligned from the outside, when we're accused by uh, those who don't believe, the worst possible response we can have is to fight fire with fire. So many churches over the years have fallen into the trap of responding to the idolatry of the world with angry denunciations, with fighting a culture war that cannot be won, of meeting accusation with accusation and doing serious damage to their own witness in the meantime. Yes, there is a place for speaking truth in the public square. Yes, a church can and should defend themselves from false accusation if there's potential damage to the reputation of Christ. But not to get revenge. Not to silence people. Not even to ensure that justice is done here and now. That is not our job. Instead... David counsels his people to remember who they are and to remember whose they are. Look at verse 5 again. Offer right sacrifices and trust in the Lord. Offer right sacrifices doesn't mean 
make sure you get the right number of pigeons. He's not talking about sort of the right motions. He's talking about the right hearts. The sacrifice in the Old Testament were meant to be offered from a repentant, uh, humble heart. And so as he says, offer right sacrifices, I think he's uh, inviting the people to remember who they are. That they're sinners. As people sin against us, we must remember that have the humility to recognize that we are sinners too. We're not the judge of the world. We're forgiven sinners who, needs God's, who need God's mercy every day. And as we enjoy that grace to us, we'll be able more and more to show that grace to others. Remember, we become like what we worship. So he says, offer right sacrifices. Secondly, he says, trust in the Lord. You don't need to get justice now. Not because justice is not important, but because it will be done. God will bring it in his time in his way. Here's how Paul, the Apostle Paul, reflected on this truth in the book of Romans much later. Perhaps this uh, passage will be worth meditating on this week from Romans 12. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it's written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with goods. Well, are we any closer, though, to answering the question we started with? What is the good of being a Christian? What is the good of becoming a Christian? I think we're getting somewhere. We've learned that here and now we can have a true knowledge of God who, as a merciful and kind Father, who is shaping us to be like him, who hears our prayers and is worthy of our trust. We've learned that here and now we can let go of anger, let go of thoughts about vengeance that can eat us up inside and yet know that justice will still be done. But at this point in the psalm, the question is still being asked, verse 6, many are asking, who can show us any good? Well, that brings us to the final section of the psalm, joy in the good gods. Perhaps if this psalm is from the same time as Psalm 3, perhaps we can imagine David still fleeing Absalom. He's just walked past Shimo, perhaps screaming abuse. He can still hear him, perhaps down the road a few hundred yards. He's just told Abishai and the rest of his men that they shouldn't do anything about it. Let the guy curse. And we perhaps imagine the puzzled looks passing between David's followers. Hang on, so what's the plan here? What are we doing? This is all going so wrong. Is there any hope? Is there any good news? Is, is following this king just going to be awful forever? Just going to walk around in the desert having people scream at us? Who can show us any goods? We're at the point about 80% of the way through the movie where it looks like the bad guys are just going to win. They hold every card. They have all the power. Their position looks impregnable. Absalom has Jerusalem. He has the people's support. David's closest supporters have defected to the other side. There seems to be no way back for our plucky bunch of ragtag heroes. Now, if this was a Hollywood movie, we'd know what was going to happen next, wouldn't we? David would give a rousing speech about daring and courage and believing in yourself. And then he'd outline a somehow audacious plan to recapture the city, you know. One big, everything on the line, last chance Hail Mary, crazy scheme. 
and they'd pull it off, and Absalom would be defeated, and would all live happily ever after. Sounds good, someone should make that, but it's not the Bible. Uh, this isn't Hollywood, this is real life. Now there is a happily ever after end to the Bible's story and to the history of the world. That's probably why Hollywood likes to make that story over and over again. We love that story, don't we? Because it is a true story. There is a happily ever after. Justice will be done when Jesus returns. Evil will be punished. Those who follow the king will find rest with him forever and the credits will roll for eternity. That was a weird way to end that sentence. But there, there wasn't a happily ever after end to David's story. Not really. Yes, David was restored to Jerusalem, but it was sad. It was compromised. It was bittersweet. And that's often the reality of life in this world here and now, isn't it? It's often the reality of life following Jesus. We don't get the happily ever after because the end hasn't come yet. And as we wait, it's often the wicked who prosper. God's people seem often to be deprived of the very blessings of God, which the enemies of God's people seem to be enjoying. You ever feel that sense? I thought I was the one in in the right with God. Why are you getting all the good stuff? And in fact, the very idea that Christians don't fight fire with fire often makes things worse in the here and now. Listen to these words of Paul again from 1 Corinthians 4. To this very hour we go hungry and thirsty. We're in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. Up to this moment, we've become the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. You see, if we did believe in that mechanical slot machine God, we would quickly conclude that Christians are about as far away from that God as possible. And so we might well ask, with David's complaining companions, who can show us any goods? What's the good of all this? We're the scum of the earth. What does David say? Verse 6. He speaks not to them, actually. He speaks to the Lord's. Let the light of your face shine upon us, O Lord's. You've filled my heart with greater joy than when their grain and new wine abound. I will lie down and sleep in peace for you alone, O Lord. Make me dwell in safety. Second half of verse 6 is an allusion back to Numbers chapter 6. This sounds just like the famous Aaronic blessing. This is what the high priest of Israel was to speak over the people as they brought their sacrifices to the temple. The Lord make his face shine upon you. As they made their offerings, as they were declared to be in the right before God, they were assured of God's favour, the light of God's face being towards them. And here's the key. David says in verse 7, I would rather have that than all the blessings that the enemies of God enjoy. They are safely in Jerusalem. They have plenty and ease. They have the walled city. They can eat, drink and be merry. Their grain and new wine abound. They've won. They have it all. But what does David have? They have a belly full of foods. But David has a heart full of joy. Why? How can David be joyful in this circumstances? Well, think about what they have compared to what David has. Yes, they have material blessings here and now. They have the wide open spaces while David is in a tight corner. But what else do they have? They have a wrong view of God. 
They worship an idol which tells them it's all down to them, that if they are to succeed in this life, if there is to be a happy ending for them, them, then it's all up to them and how they perform. They must trust in themselves ultimately because they've got a mechanical slot machine God. And meanwhile, they are completely cut off from the true God. As they rant and rage against the anointed Son of God King, they are storing up wrath for themselves. And so for David's enemies, there can be no peace. No peace in the future, because all they can look forward to is God's judgment. But here's the key, no peace in this life either. Because it's all down to them. They must be self-reliant, because if they slip up, God will simply punish them. And as they are unforgiven, they do not know the peace of being able to forgive others. They become like what they worship. They must get vengeance and justice here and now because justice will not be done by anyone else. Now let me ask you a question. Does that sound familiar at all? Does that sound a little bit like our world? Proudly self-reliant on the outside. We're winning. We're hashtag blessed. But inwardly anxious and scared. Because if we don't perform... And if we don't get people's approval, then we're simply worthless. Crying out for justice with furious anger, unable to rest because somewhere someone on the internet is wrong and we are unable to forgive and justice must be done. Otherwise, it can't be done otherwise. We've got to sort it all out now. Does that sound familiar at all? That is the result, that is the societal, cultural result of abandoning the God who is both merciful and just the righteous God who declares sinners righteous. One, someone who humbles themselves and trusts that kind of God can know that justice will be done without needing to be the one that does it. That person can know the true vindication of God even as the false accusations mount. That person can forgive others and sleep easy rather than being consumed with rage. But without that God, we are left with a merciless and pitiless world. We're left with Shimei, a man utterly consumed with anger, shouting and screaming at the side of a dusty road, slandering not only God's king and God's people, but slandering God himself, and yet believing he's in the right all along. And so let me ask you another question. Who would you rather be? Would you rather be Shimei or David? It would seem that David has nothing. He's lost his reputation with people. He's on the run. He's tired and hungry. But in reality, it's David who has it all. He has access to the righteous God. He has the sure knowledge that God honors him even as others shame him. He has sure trust that one day justice will be done. He has the security of knowing God has forgiven his sins. He has the liberating truth that his joy does not need to be tied to his circumstances, but can be tied to his relationship to the living God. Yes, life is hard now. He's not turning cartwheels But he has a bedrock of joy in his heart, which comes from the sure knowledge that he can call on the God of his righteousness, the merciful and compassionate God. So he hasn't got any bread or wine just now, so what? He has the Lord of all, and therefore he has everything. Well, let's conclude. 
This was David's story, and it was Jesus' story too, wasn't it? More than David ever was, Jesus was put in a tight corner by his enemies. His enemies spoke lies about him, they called him a blasphemer, and therefore they spoke lies about his father God's. Jesus was bound and beaten and stripped and crucified. And yet, as Peter says on the screen, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. See, Jesus knew that God had set him apart, that he belonged to his Father. And so he cried out to God. Even in the midst of him being crucified, the greatest injustice the world has ever seen, he did not need to get justice there and then, because he knew that justice would be done. And it was. God the Father vindicated Jesus, he delivered him from the sleep of death to the the cramped conditions of the tomb to the wide open space of new life with him. New life in the new creation. God declared him righteous, set him free from the bonds of death, vindicated him as the true son of God, king. And because that is Jesus' story, that can be ours too. I want to read you some words from Paul from Romans chapter 8 and I hope this will finally answer our question What is the good of being a Christian? What is the good of becoming a Christian? Let me read you these words and let Paul answer it for us. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen. It's God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death All day long we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord's. I'd love us to respond by reading the words of Psalm 4 together, making David's song our song. Hope you can see the words of the Bible near you. I'll read the, the heading, and uh, if you can read with me, you, can, you don't have to say the sellers. Some children's got it. Psalm 4, for the director of music, with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Let's say these words together. Answer me when I call to you, O my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Be merciful to me and hear my prayer. How long, O men, will you turn my glory into shame? 
how long will you love delusions and seek false gods? Know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord will hear when I call to him. In your anger, do not sin. When you are on your beds, search your hearts and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and trust in the Lord. Many are asking, who can show us any good? Let the light of your face shine upon us, O Lord. You have filled my heart with greater joy than when their grain and new wine abound. I will lie down and sleep in peace. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Amen.